Welcome to the Daring Mighty Things podcast, a show about the dreamers and the doers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, also known as JPL. In every episode, we try to give you a behind-the-scenes look at the lives and journeys of the folks working on unique missions in support of humanity's need to explore the universe and the stars. I'm your host, Patricia Lenny. And I'm your other host, Lainey James. And before we get started, we wanted to take a moment to remind you to follow us at NASA JPL Careers on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're ready to dare mighty things, check out our open opportunities at jpl.jobs. She's been called a real-life guardian of the galaxy due to her work protecting Earth as well as other planetary bodies from microscopic bacteria potentially carried by the spacecraft and rovers exploring our solar system. Today, we're joined by Dr. Mujige Cooper, Group Supervisor in the Biotechnology and Planetary Protection Group at JPL. She worked on the Mars Perseverance rover, and she's currently working on the future Mars sample return mission. Dr. Cooper is also developing new sterilization methods for future missions use. In fact, her dissertation is all about non-equilibrium plasma sterilization of spacecraft materials. Dr. Cooper, or Moo, is dedicated to sharing her joy of science with children and adults around the world. She has a bachelor's in physics from Hampton University and a master's and PhD in mechanical engineering with a concentration in thermal fluid sciences from Drexel University. Moo, as the group supervisor of planetary protection, tell us, what do you do here? What does that mean? <laughs> That's a great question. I ask myself that every day. No. <laughs> we do too sometimes. Right so, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, what I do on a day-to-day basis as the group supervisor is I make sure that all of the planetary protectors at the Jet Propulsion Lab are applying themselves to all the different missions that require planetary protection. There are people that work on Psyche. Um, there are people that work on Europa Clipper. And I have to make sure that the right people are connected to the right jobs. So what are they protecting these planetary bodies from? Yeah, the the main goal is to protect those bodies from our germs. We don't want to make those destinations sick with our microbes because eventually we hope to search for life in those locations or possibly bring a sample back that hasn't been contaminated by our own germs. So I actually had my dad visiting uh-huh. last weekend and we were watching one of the National Geographic documentaries mm-hmm. where they talk about planetary protection. Yeah. And he's watching this and they have a part where they talk about cleaning mm-hmm. the instruments that are going and how precise that project has to be. And some of the challenges that uh, the team encountered along the way were some of these things were too clean. And then they were having issues with the drill and some of these components. And my dad made a comment about, you know, because he knows everything, he says, <laughs> I don't think germs could survive the trip to Mars. So I don't know why they have to clean it that much. I bet in space it's too cold and the germs would die and they don't need to worry about it. And I said, I am going to interview someone who works on that next week and I'm going to ask her to answer that question. So. Yeah. Well, your dad is uh, partially correct in that there are a lot of microbes on our planet that will die in the vacuum of space and the cold temperatures and exposed to all that radiation. However, there is a subset of microbes on our planet that can form these seed-like structures. So similar to when you go to the store and you want to plant uh, a tree and you buy the seeds. Do you consider those seeds to be living things? 
Not really. It's in a dormant state. And there are microbes on our planet that can go into a dormant state until the right conditions exist wherever that target destination might be, and then it can germinate and grow. So those are the main things that we're really targeting, um, those seed-like structures and those extreme microbes that don't have to form those seeds and could still resist those environments. So you're basically making sure that Earth, that we're not the space invaders. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) What is your day-to-day work like? Well, before I was a group supervisor, I still technically am the lead for planetary protection on the Mars 2020 mission. And the day-to-day life was actually quite exciting. And we'd start every day, 7.30 in the morning. We would be sitting in a room filled with engineers, technicians, uh, electricians, doing a tactical plan of the day. So we knew what was ahead. We knew what was being bolted together. We knew what tests were happening. And then in turn, we knew what we had to sample for the day. So the day-to-day was really exciting because we knew, okay, wow, uh, RIMFAX is going to go on. So we know we have to sample it before they put those two pieces together. And it's just really exciting to, to know that every single part on Mars right now Myself or someone from my team touched it with a clean swab, but we did touch it. (laughs) And how long does that take? How long does it take to clean an instrument that goes onto a piece of spacecraft? It takes quite a while. So, for example, if your option to clean is baking instead of throwing a cake in the oven for at 375 degrees Fahrenheit, right, for for an hour, we're throwing it in an oven for 110 degrees Celsius for, you know, a week. (laughs) And that would kill off um, a significant amount of the microbes. And then we have to protect it so that it doesn't get recontaminated. Like when you bake a cake, you have to put a little protector over it instead of having it out in the open for dust to fall on the icing. Um, So it's really important to not only clean, but keep it clean. And it took us, um, at least I worked on the mission eight years before launch. Is that eight? Seven seven to eight years. (laughs) That's a long time. Yeah. So it's when you're in the cleaning phase, you're still years ahead of the planning phase, which is where it's really important to have planetary protectors as part of that conversation because you got to do it right from the beginning. And so you also followed the Mars 2020, the Perseverance rover, to Kennedy. That's right. And did you have to clean it again? Yeah. So we always have to protect it from being cleaned. There are certain times, you know, when you get bored, not necessarily bored, but we tend to wipe down the spacecraft. You know, when there are, when you know that there are parts coming together or if you know like, okay, maybe I could just wipe a few things down here and there. We just clean, clean, clean constantly. And so it's important to not only make sure that those items are clean, but just to protect it at all times possible. So yeah, lots of cleaning. (laughs) So how does that translate to your home life? Oh, you know, I love (laughs) this question because most people think that I am really obsessed about having things ultra clean and my house must be neat. And that is not the case because the microbes that we have here on our planet We need them on our body and in our body to regulate our systems. So I'm the opposite. I mean, clearly I won't have something fall on the floor and eat it or anything and and say, (laughs) oh, it's giving my immunity. We all have five standards. You're the five-second rule, at least. The five-second rule. (laughs) But yeah, so I try to balance it out because we need those germs, but Mars doesn't need our germs. So there's a great sense of responsibility in that which is pretty, you know, significant. So how does it feel? I mean, to feel to know that that is your job and to have that responsibility. It feels like I'm humbled uh, every day because, I mean, I've wanted to do something to this effect since I was a child. 
And to be able to have that position and to be able to do this this job every day, yeah, I'm just I pinch myself all the time because I'm just happy with with what I do. <laughs> Samu, I actually had a question about that because when yeah. you said about how you need these planetary protection specialists to do this yeah. work, mm-hmm. I was thinking back to when I was a kid, I don't remember hearing about planetary protection as I think you would study. Mm-hmm. You know, we think about, oh, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be an engineer. Do you recall when you started sort of to be aware that in order to s- explore other planets, we needed to have these planetary protection specialists and how you kind of went into that? Yeah. So I also was not aware of this discipline at all as a child. <laughs> My first goal was you know, to work with NASA to understand where our place is in this universe. And it wasn't until graduate school that I ever found out what planetary protection was. Um, I worked on a plasma sterilization device for my dissertation, and I found out it was for the purposes of planetary protection. Like, oh, well, what is that? Like, oh, we want to keep our germs to ourselves. So I thought, whoa, this is cool. And this is part of that initial goal of finding out where we are in this universe. You need to make sure you have a clean device to be able to determine if life exists elsewhere beyond our planet. So it's still, that's why it still ties to my goal as a child. I didn't say, I want to be a planetary protection engineer. (laughs) Right, right. Yep. to ask each of our guests about their own personal EDL. And you know what EDL is to to JPL. And for our listeners out there who are unfamiliar with the term EDL, it stands for Entry, Descent, and Landing for a Spacecraft as We Land on Another Planet. So missions work for years on this part. This is where we know where you fail or succeed, you know, your landing of a spacecraft. So we'd like to chat with you about that. You've already kind of alluded to your personal entry, descent and landing, and the the entry portion of your career at JPL. So as you were deciding that you were going to pursue STEM and and you were learning about planetary protection as a role, tell us a little bit. You've done a lot of research and kind of how you got to that point, because I know you've had a lot of amazing internships at other centers and a lot of research. So how do you get from that in high school to here? What was a little bit of your career path? I love talking about the NASA pipeline. This is something that I heard as a child, where as soon as you get your foot in the door, and this is what I tell students when I talk to them, like jam your foot in there and don't take it out. (laughs) (laughs) That's great advice. Yeah. So um, it started when I was 16. So I started college um, when I was 16, and I went to under supervision of my step-parent at the time, I went to um, my future mentor's office and asked for a position in his research lab just doing computer programming. And here is a kid who doesn't know how to program at all (laughs) asking for an internship. And so that was kind of the beginning of my journey. There was a satellite that collected data. It was on a NASA satellite. And it was my job to compare it to ground-based data and do data validation. And then that turned into, well, I'm down the street from NASA Langley, so maybe I should apply for a co-op job. And fortunately, I got that. And year after year, that's my that was my cycle. During the summers, I would be at Langley. During the school year, I would work on satellite data. 
And that kind of turned into, all right, I want to go to graduate school. So I applied for a NASA fellowship. And that's another thing that I tell students is internship, 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 and make sure you get a fellowship if you're considering a master's or PhD, because it's so important. You're, you become your own PI, your own principal, principal investigator of your own direction. And it's a great practice to being a full-blown grown-up scientist. <laughs> you make a really good call out there on principal investigator. Mm -hmm. For students who don't know, what is a principal investigator? So a principal investigator is the person that thinks of a, a research direction. It could be whatever your research project is. You write up the proposal. You you understand the flow of you know what you're trying to do, what your what goals you're trying to accomplish, what budget you need, how many people you need, what resources you need, um, and you kind of build your own research empire, <laughs> um, starting from proposals. So that's perfect in translating that to career path is yeah. you want to, you know, be the principal investigator for your career and kind yeah. of guide the entire process and to start that early on. Mm -hmm. And there, there's one thing you did leave out in there is that you have a patent. I do. <laughs> T tell yeah. us a little, a little bit, a high level, like, you know, we are communicators. We're not engineers or scientists. So simplify it. Tell us like we're fifth graders. W what is your patent about? Sure. Yeah, the patent. So I'm one of the uh, patent holders and we all got together and found a way to kill a bunch of microbes with a very high energy plasma. It uses, okay, it's a non-equilibrium plasma, which means the gas temperature stays low and the electron temperature is high, which is what does the damage. So basically, uh, I'm a microbial mass murderer in this patent for <laughs> using a specific device. And if that is not <laughs> on your LinkedIn profile, I'll be disappointed. <laughs> Moo, I actually want to go a little bit farther back. We talked a little bit about how when you were 16, you met with your future mentor. If we go farther back, do you have a recollection of when was the first time that that love for NASA and NASA missions and that work not only captivated you, but then when you made that connection to say, I, I could be a part of that. Do you have that recollection? Yeah, yeah. It, it happened when I was in the fifth grade. And during the summertime, we would always go to the public library. My younger brother and younger sister loved reading, and that was not my jam. But <laughs> so I would go to the media section. I would, of course, I would rent some books too. But I for some reason at that time, rented the first VHS of Carl Sagan's The Cosmos. And watching this guy, this scientist, this brilliant man, Carl Sagan, on the screen talking about extremely complicated topics in a way that I could understand really sparked my interest. I mean, at that time, I was living down the street from NASA Langley. And as much as I liked space and found it interesting, it didn't really click until that moment. And, and that's why I tell you know, students out there, Forgive yourself. Give yourself some grace. If you didn't find that spark yet, just explore different opportunities. Expose yourself to different situations such that you can find whatever clicks for you. Cosmos. I watched it probably like five years ago, and I thought it was incredible. I can't imagine if yeah. I had watched that when I was a kid. It mm. would have been so inspiring because you're <laughs> right. He did a really great job of taking very complicated subjects and making them accessible and making 
kids out there feel like you could be a part of this world. Yeah. And I love how you brought up, you know, whether or not something is accessible and psyching themselves out. Because I remember one of the moments when I was applying for um, the graduate fellowship, uh, the NASA fellowship, I thought, you know, as I was writing it and trying to be my own PI, at first I'm like, what am I thinking? Who am I to think that I could be in charge of this project? And there was a point where I was about to just give up and not submit the application. And then I thought, wow, how many other people are having the same mental conversation? And then they give up. So I'm like, okay, if I at least submit the application, that'll give them an opportunity to say no. But at least I'm already ahead of all the people who convince themselves to not even submit an application. So that's why I like telling people, just push through and at least submit something. Let them tell you no, but put your best out there. Still shoot your shot. Right. There is a lot of imposter syndrome sometimes in some of these fields, Mm -hmm. STEM, particularly women that think to themselves, who do I think I am to be trying to submit this? Mm -hmm. So it's really great to see that you were able to overcome that fear. I mean, ultimately, that's what it is. It's it's fear. We are afraid of failure. We're afraid of not fitting in. And ultimately, and it's amazing working with these brilliant people around me at JPL, there are just people I don't understand how I can live in the same universe as they do. But they always, their biggest lesson learned that I carry on is failure is not a bad thing. When you fail, you learn something from the situation. You can be better. You can improve. So stick yourself out there. Like, be uncomfortable. You can, it's okay to fail. So in the path of being uncomfortable, which I would hope this wasn't uncomfortable, (laughs) but on your journey to JPL and you were talking about imposter syndrome, is there anything you felt like you had to overcome to push through that? Like, you know, you you were like, I am already ahead of the people that are not applying for this. How did that experience apply when you were like, planetary protection, JPL, (laughs) I'm going for it. What pushed you through to that? Yeah, what was really helpful is just having that pipeline of people support, a support structure that will help kind of talk me into like, okay, you got this, you can do it. Um, and, and I think support structure is really important. They don't have to know what you're doing. <laughs> they don't have to be scientists or engineers, but having people kind of say, you know, you, you got this. Uh, really helps push you through. Um, Making the connection to planetary protection, I was fortunate that the graduate work that I was doing while I was doing my PhD work related to a grant that was already existing at JPL. And the fellowship that I had allowed me to go intern at any NASA center I wanted. So I chose JPL because we have a connection there. I have a connection there. And while I was there, I was able to network with other people on lab. Um, I needed some extreme microbes to kill with my plasma device. (laughs) So I talked to um, a person in the planetary protection group, and he gave me these microbes that they found in the stratosphere and another microbe that can survive more radiation than humans because we'll die at that dose. And then after a while, he said, you know, um, whenever you're done with your PhD, come come to my lab. I'll hire you as a postdoc. Like, I will take you up on that offer. So it's really important to kind of network. I always had that next opportunity set up before I made the move. And it really helped to push myself outside of my comfort zone and and be like, okay, there's a place ready to go. (laughs) What would you say to folks that maybe don't have that network right Mm. now, but still want to land, right? Because we were talking about this idea of landing at JPL. There might be folks out there who 
who haven't had the opportunity or the chance to develop those kind of networks, but maybe yeah. see an internship or see a career opportunity at JPL and right now are listening to this and they're psyching themselves out. Yeah. Oh, I don't know anybody there. You know, what would you say to them? Maybe if you can talk to us a little bit more about the internships that are at JPL, opportunities of kind of making that landing at JPL. One thing that has always impressed me with interns that are looking to find a position at JPL within my lab is when they do their research. In order to apply for an internship, there are AOs, announcements of opportunity. And in that announcement, there's a little bit of a blurb about what they're expected to do. And so if as an intern out there, say you don't have any networks, any connections, look up the PI, principal investigator, on that announcement. Look at the work that they've done, read the journal articles, and send them an email and say, hey, I read your articles, and I'm really interested in contributing to XYZ. Whenever anyone has done that for me, I'm like, wow, I'm blown away, because clearly this person is not only interested, they're excited, and they take the initiative to really dive deep, and it shows me what kind of work ethic they're going to have if I choose to hire them. And if I don't have a spot, I will lobby them around, right, and say, look at this person, they're amazing. So I would suggest doing your research and reaching out, trying to build that network, even though you don't have one. I would agree. I mean, it's the little things sometimes that count in these internships. Yes. Uh, Lenny and I can, can, For sure. can attest to that. <laughs> so just, you know, show us that you know that JPL works on certain things. Yes. <laughs> yes. If that, that is one career tip anyone listening to this podcast takes is do your research before the interview. Understand what the group does that you're interviewing with, what the missions are at JPL. And of course, I'm going to be specific to JPL, but in general, do your research. I, you know, have a past as a career services professional in a university, and that was the number one piece of feedback that employers had was, you know, students need to do their research before the interview. So we also did our research in this interview. and Some, some light stalking. Some light oh, stalking. Light stalking. Of, of things that you do. I want to know a little bit, like, what's it like to work the lab? I mean, because you mentioned earlier about being around all these really brilliant people. And then, you know, at the same time, you do a lot of stuff with outreach. How does that work into your work? I think it's so important to engage in outreach because I was fortunate enough. Yes, I worked hard, but also I consider myself partially lucky, too, to be in this position. And I feel like it's my duty to pay that forward and to be able to make it accessible, make these topics accessible for someone else. Um, and so that's why I find it important to do these outreach events. So yeah, I love doing a mix of, yes, lectures about scientific topics, but also, you know, relating it to something that is like every day and understandable and tangible. We ran into you at Comic-Con right? LA yes. this year. Yes, we did. We did. <laughs> that was really funny. We, I happened to be there for something else with my friends, and I get a text from Lainey. <laughs> You're like, oh, a JPL's here, and they're doing a panel with the writers yes. for Star Trek. Yes. You and Morgan Cable yeah. were there. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, that was just awesome. Yeah. No, I, I think it's, I mean, it's very important when 
writers, directors, producers network with scientists to at least try to make a more accessible and more scientifically accurate story. And so this panel was about how writers kind of tie into the latest breaking science and how scientists maybe lean on what we find in the sci-fi world to gain inspiration in what we design and engineer for future missions. So there's definitely this symbiotic relationship between the two of us. And it was great to bring that out at Comic-Con. So thinking about the sci-fi and Comic-Con and, and stuff like that, tell us more about, I mean, because your job, planetary protection, sounds very sci-fi. Yeah. Guardian of the galaxy over yeah. here. Uh, <laughs> but I do want to talk about that influence and that impact because that event was about the farewell celebration for Nichelle Nichols, which here at NASA and, and JPL, like, her involvement in sci-fi and Star Trek and that show like launched literally thousands of careers. And I get goose, I literally get goosebumps right. just thinking yeah. about that. And you had an opportunity to be a part of that celebration. And I know Moo had her own fangirl moment <laughs> when she met Dr. Mae Jemison, <sighs> NASA astronaut, mm -hmm. first African-American woman, black woman in space. Yes. And I can tell you being around that weekend is Dr. <laughs> Jemison was your number one hype girl. Oh, my goodness. And to say that those words that just came out of your mouth, I was there <laughs> and I don't believe it. No. <laughs> but yeah, it was. it's true. She was my number one hype woman. And that does not compute in my mind. Uh, she at one point there was a, a celebration with with Nichelle Nichols. It was amazing. A nice reception, which we were both at. And I remember Dr. Jamison was getting like warm because, you know, we were all enjoying the, our time and dancing around. So she pulled out her Mae Jemison branded fan that she was fanning herself with. And I said, oh, where can I buy that fan? That looks amazing. And she looked at me and she closed up the fan and she handed it to me. <laughs> and I almost died. <laughs> That's incredible. I can only hope that any of us in this room will one day reach that level of success <laughs> where you have a personally branded right. fan. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And That's I, how you know you've made it. I <laughs> felt honored to just be fanned with it, to be honest with you, I, because I was there at that moment. And I saw her give it to you and you were like, oh, my gosh, just, yeah. you know, that like, you know, that fan that was like, this is your hero. And I know yeah. she's one of the the people that you had, um, you know, looked up to and, yes. and uh, you know, in, in your career, a lot, a lot of people, you know, did. And then she was also inspired by St Star Trek and Nichelle Nich Nichols. But you were a part of, what, like, four panels that weekend, oh, or at least goodness. at least three. And yeah. the, the first one was talking about the influence of Nichelle Nichols on women and people of color joining the space program. Yes. And this is how I found out about it. I saw Nichelle Nichols was going to be at LA Comic Con, I was looking to see, and then I noticed the panel, and I was like, wait a minute, those are all my coworkers. I'm <laughs> gonna go. And it was um, uh, Diana Trujillo, mm -hmm. Swati Mohan, and you. Mm -hmm. And so I jumped in, and then, of course, later I texted Patricia, and I was like, I was there. No, I texted you because I saw an R2D2 roaming around, as and one does at Comic Con. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it was like painted differently. And I was like, oh, that's an evil R2-D2. So I sent a picture to Lainey. It's like, oh, I'm hanging out, I'm hanging out with R2-D2. And she was like, I'm here too. 
And if for our audience, if you're not as familiar with Dr. May Jemison's career, you know, she's an engineer, physician and former NASA astronaut. And she was the first black woman to travel into space um, aboard the space shuttle Endeavor. So she's on all of the social medias. And I don't mean to be a hype person for <laughs> Dr. May Jemison, but I know I Why have not? Vibes. I know. I was going to say. Why not? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I guess I, sh- I should be. I mean, I had seen her speak one other time um, regarding long-term intergalactic uh, travel. Uh, It was called the 100-year spaceship. And I remember something so impactful, she said, during that time and why the work that NASA and JPL and everyone who's a part of it, it is so important. She said, solving the problems of a 100-year intergalactic or space journey, because I would hope it was intergalactic, but (laughs) we won't get into the technical things of why it could or couldn't be, is that Solving those problems help us solve the same problems on Earth. Exactly. I want to go back to something that you said earlier, which I think is really powerful, and I want to get your take on it. We talk a lot about the importance of paying it forward and representation. Um, We talk about the importance of seeing the Shell Nichols, Mae Jameson, and then you finding that really powerful. Why? To the folks out there who might not think about, well, it's just... We just want to see people doing cool stuff in space. But why does it matter that it was them who yeah. you saw? Yeah. At some point in the future, I hope that this event just is a normal occasion. But the reason why this was so important to see Dr. Jemison, to see Nichelle Nichols, is because they blazed the trail. They were the shoulders upon which I stand. And even though we are not to a point yet where, you know, every all, every problem is solved, they worked so tirelessly to make sure that women, women of color within NASA uh, found a home and that's why it went, meant so much to me to meet the both of them, because I know what they struggled through to get to where they are, to, to earn their success. I think we could argue that perhaps not all the trails have been blazed yet. There yes. are still many trails to be blazed. And that's why we continue to need folks like you, folks like them, a representation in, in sci-fi, in things like Star Trek and Star Wars to inspire the next generation. Exactly. And, and in prominent roles, right? Not right. just to be there, but just like Nichelle, she was in the core crew. <laughs> and, and for that to be a normal thing, I mean, that's why Star Trek was the thing of the future. They had such a diverse cast. Right. And that was supposed to be normal in the future. Right. Yeah. Before we move away from the Comic-Con conversation, I just want to point out that Lainey and I bought matching Star Wars posters. We did. So if that, I hope that that adds a little bit to my nerd cred. It does. It does. I don't know. We just talked a bunch about Star Trek and then you brought up Star Wars. I feel like someone's going to hate on that. No, No, well, it's, 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 well, and, and it, and it's, and it's possible, but you know, uh, we should start like, um. You know, some sort of go, go not, not GoFundMe, but something about, it. you know, get Patricia to watch Star Trek. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, just watch one episode a day. Well, it's it, well, it's interesting is that I tried to get my, my daughter to watch Star Trek The Motion Picture this weekend. And I remembered why I love that movie so much. There's this entity, if you haven't seen it, sorry for the spoilers. There's this entity that has come back to Earth looking for the creator. And that entity is Voyager 6. So Voyager 1 and 2? 
built here at JPL. Yes. Did they have planetary protection folks back then? That's a great question. So Voyager was not subject to the planetary protection rules (laughs) because it's meant to kind of go out there. It's not crossing the orbits of anything that we find to be harboring life. So as it's venturing out beyond our solar system, it's slowly getting cleaner and cleaner because it's in the vacuum of space. Uh, But it is the farthest object away from our Earth where possible living Earth things have been transported. So, you know, it's 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 an interesting. We hope that (laughs) we hope that it'll be found. Yeah. One day. That's why we have the golden record on board. We've talked a lot about your outreach, and that's kind of the descent portion of our EDL, like how you got here and, and the work that you're doing now. How does doing the work of a planetary protection guardian of the galaxy feed you versus your outreach work? Like what? how do they get you hyped or excited in different ways? Because, you know, they're such different types of work. For sure, yeah, and and the the whole day job of you know being that guardian of the galaxy <laughs> is is truly exciting. We're asking and answering questions that no one else is asking or answering, and I think that makes me extremely excited, and it gives me fodder for talking to doing that outreach side. You know, I I think without my job at JPL. I wouldn't have the credibility of JPL and NASA and the amazing stories to share and inspire with those outside of our organization. So I think that both are very important and one kind of feeds into the other. And without that excitement of talking to students and the public, that kind of would make me not incomplete. You know, I, I would feel that I would be missing that that inspirational side. And I think that also charges me to say, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing every day. Another thing that you volunteer and do is that you are the president of BEST, which is the Black Excellence Strategic Team. And it is one of our communities of inclusion here at JPL. Tell us about your involvement. What does that mean? And why did you get involved and why it's important? So BEST, the Black Excellence Strategic Team, was actually that name was updated from, uh, it, it said of Black, it used to be African American. And then we realized there are people from uh, the Caribbean, there are people from all different countries within Africa, from all over the world that identify as Black or of African descent. And so that's why we changed the name to be even more inclusive. And so my involvement was actually quite minimal when I first started off. After a period of time, I thought, I I would like to be part of the change and be part of making JPL an even more amazing place because it's already fantastic. But to be able to be part of a community with a voice that could make this institution, this organization, a lot more inclusive is so important because as much as I do in the outreach side, I have to make sure there's a good home, a good landing spot. When those people that I inspire or other people inspire decide to come to work for NASA, I want them to land in in a safe space and in a space where they think their voice can be heard, where they can be part of an active community and dare mighty things. (laughs) And I think that that's uh, one of the great things of working at JPL. In my time here, it's been really 
powerful to see that importance of community mm -hmm. within the organization. And I've rarely seen that at other places that I've yeah. worked at is the importance that the employees and the organization has on this sense of community. We want you to feel like this is a place for you to bring your best self so that you can do the best work. And not only do we have, I think, the seven ERGs that Mu is a part of, but we also have dozens of employee involvement groups from the astrophotographers. Neurodiversity um, group. Yeah. So it's just been fascinating to see how much that's valued and how much the employees want to create that, not just out there, to your point through the outreach work that some of them are doing, but here as well. Exactly. We need to make a better space <laughs> for people here on our planet and here within our organization. And what really warms my heart is with all of these communities of inclusion, we link together and we're allies for one another because any goal that one particular entity has is something that would make our lab a better place. So we all unify to make sure that we just make a better place for not only one community, but for all of all our communities. Yeah, yeah. It, it benefits us all. So it's just, yeah, amazing the allyship that we have. That's great. Yeah. The allyship and, and the representation. And that's something that you, I've heard you talk about and why that's important. And if you don't mind sharing, because you had I remember you said it, and it stuck with me, is that you don't wear your PhD on your shoulder. Talk about why representation is so important and how that also, you know, you use those experiences and the example to help create that safe community or the communities of cooperation and inclusion at the lab. Yeah, and, and that's why maybe in my introduction for at one point I would say, yes, I'm Dr. Mujige Cooper, but I like to put that aside because I want to seem like or be an accessible, I want to appear to others. I, I actually do want to be. She came in with an entourage, everyone, right. in case you didn't know. We had to kick them out. You're not supposed to tell them about that. <laughs> um, no, I want to be accessible. I mean, I can imagine as a child, you know, I didn't see Dr. Carl Sagan on the screen. I saw a dude named Carl <laughs> who I knew was smart, who I knew was a a brilliant person, but he was just approachable. And that's what I want to also extend at my core to other people so that they can ask me questions and, and figure out their own journey. And that's why I put the PhD to the side. Um, but I still have it in my back pocket just in case, you know, I, I don't I don't play. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I, I got the credibility. But th that aside, I want to inspire others and and please come come ask me questions. One of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast and have these conversations is because we want to show that the folks that work at JPL and that work on these missions, yeah. yes, they're PhDs, they're doctors, they're incredible, incredible scientists, engineers, you know, business, financial folks. Like they're, they're incredible, but they're also just like you. Yeah. They go home and they turn on they're video games and they play video games, yeah. you know, they, they stream, they cook, they play in bands. Yes. You know? Which is about the nerdiest thing that you see around JPL is the, is, what is the name of our local band? Like the Rocket Band? Or something. Oh, wait, there's there, several. There's the yeah, jazz, this jazz, jazz Propulsion jazz, Band. Jazz, yeah. jazz, the Jazz Propulsion. <laughs> Which I say that with love, by the way, because I am a woodwind player. I didn't play in a long time, but as a flute player in the marching band, I lovingly call it the nerdiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> okay. I'm, and I'm going to be sure to share that with my daughter because she's playing the 
the flute right now. But going out, oh, so the producer did get back to me. Shop 300 and oh. then RTGS, which stands for Radio Isotope Thermal Electric Generator. Um, I'm not sure how that translates to a band name, but I'll go with it because they're really, really smart people um, around here. But along this track, like, okay, so you play the flute. Do you play any other instruments? Play is a strong word. (laughs) I can carry a tune on the guitar, the piano-ish, and um, my COVID hobby, the ukulele. I have had a guitar since I was like 12, Ah. and I've moved countries. I've moved states. I've taken guitar lessons. I have it sitting in my living room. Mm-hmm. I cannot even carry a tune on it. And I, but it is the hope that one day. Learn four chords and you can play dozens of tunes, okay. hundreds of tunes. So we, we know you play instruments. We know that you do outreach for fun. Um, what are some, I, I know there are a couple other things that you do. I know that you're a consultant for some shows about <laughs> science. I am. And stuff like that as well, which has to be pretty cool. It's pretty amazing to to be you know the person that writes the equations on the chalkboard, or you know the person that's the talking head when they're they're showing black holes, uh, explaining explaining a few principles here and there. Um, it's fun. What of the recent sci-fi movies that have come out? What have you seen one? You were like, oh, wow, that was pretty accurate, or like I really appreciate the amount of research that went into that. Or they need me. Oh. <laughs> Okay, maybe oh. maybe let's not, let's not, okay. not name those. No, no, okay, okay. Well, I mean, I, actually, one thing I will say about that is, as a you know, as a scientist and engineer, it's important to also remember that you're a human, and the main goal is storytelling. And there's a certain amount of my background and my degrees that I just put to the side, and you have to put to the side because they want to make an enjoyable product. So while I appreciate their movies like The Martian, right, that I mean, he spent some time. Apparently, there were blogs and people were giving feedback to to Andy. And it's really I love the authenticity of that movie uh, for the most part. But for those that maybe could have done a better job, I'm like, you know what? That's okay because they want to tell a story. And I'm a human first. And so I will just enjoy the story. Okay, sorry. I have to go back. You still didn't name (laughs) a movie recently that you watched or Uh, TV uh. show where you said, wow, that's great. (laughs) <laughs> just say it. Just just say if it's horrible, we can edit it out. It's Got fine. It. No, no. I'm, I'm trying to think which sci-fi show that I've seen lately. Because, man, sometimes. I think The Expanse was decent. The Expanse, yeah. Yeah. I, thought I, that did. was, I didn't finish watching the fifth season, but I, I mean, thought, I was like, wow, okay. It felt real. Like, even the way they show people, like, anti-gravity. I was like, okay, I can, I can take that. I did. That's the fun, the interesting thing because when people come up to me, they're like, "You work for NASA? Did you watch The Expanse or did you watch?" And they'd name like other shows uh-huh. and movies, and I would say, "No, I didn't watch it, but I'll maybe watch it in the future." Um, <laughs> I think, and the same thing goes. At least when I was reading the book, The Martian. Um, at a certain point, I had to put the book down because I thought I feel like I don't have a charge code for this. Who this is like being at work, <laughs> you know? <laughs> because everything was so accurate that it felt like I was at, at, at the work. job. At yeah, work. okay, I get so it. So <laughs> maybe that's why I kind of don't watch as much sci-fi as maybe people expect me to watch because it's just so either close or maybe if you, I don't know. How accurate was the representation of JPLers, in your opinion? Ah, 
So there, there are two things. My uh, opinion of the accuracy of JPLers and JPL. <laughs> so of JPL, the facilities, I'm like, whoa, where, what is that modern place? <laughs> like, That's not JPL. Because I, one thing I love about many of the buildings on, on Lab is it looks the same as when they first built it. There's a ton of beautiful brand new buildings on campus, but there are also like really, really old buildings. And I wouldn't, wouldn't have it any other way because you can trace it back to the beginnings. And then as far as accuracy of JPLers, totally accurate. Totally accurate. <laughs> the personalities, oh, spot on. <laughs> That's funny. And there were no deer walking around mm-hmm. JPL in the movie, which we have that all the time here. Yeah. So, <laughs> Fun fact, the reason I learned about JPL was after watching The Martian. I did not know about JPL until I watched that movie and found out that they were in this area. And I came with a friend of mine to the open house that year. The open houses at JPL used to be you could just come by, no tickets required. There were so many people at JPL that I think they even had to close the freeway that year. (laughs) It was. And then after that, they, they have this. It's free tickets, but they had to do like a ticketing system because they were, I guess, not expecting that renewed interest but that was my first time and I don't think I saw anything because the lines for everything was so long yeah little did I know that a couple years later I would be on the website oh okay I can work there so Moo we want to thank you for being here with us today but we do have one final question what advice do you have for someone who wants to dare mighty things and thinks that I don't know if I could do JPL or NASA or STEM or whatever what advice do you have for them? I would say to lean on your support system because sometimes, yeah, there might be something you want to do and you're not sure about it. And if you just talk it out with your closest uh, people, whether it be your family members, your friends, your colleagues, let them be a sounding board and and see, you know, talk that out. But then on the other hand, shoot your shot. I'm horrible at quotes, but you know, you miss you miss all the shots you don't shoot or something. Somebody yeah. important you miss one hundred percent of the shots you don't take. You there don't we take. go. Yeah. See, <laughs> this is why I don't do quotes. But <laughs> but yeah, it's really important to just put yourself in that vulnerable position because. If you want to dare mighty things, you got to dare mighty things on a local basis, too, to, to make those big things happen. It's small daring that gets you to the big darings. <laughs> Dr. Cooper, I think somebody will be quoting you in the future. <laughs> It'd be a, a, a funny quote, but yes. <laughs> I don't think what you just said was incredible. Oh, it's the little, the little acts yes. of might yes. that get us to the big ones. Definitely. Well, thank you again for joining us today. And we would like to also thank our audience because without listeners like you, none of this would be possible. Please be sure to subscribe on wherever you listen to podcasts. We put out a new episode of the season each week. And be sure to follow us on social media at NASA JPL Careers. And don't be afraid to dare mighty things from the little to the big things and explore our careers at jpl.jobs. Talk to you next time.